Hello, Sobertown. Welcome to the Sobertown Podcast. Let's jump on that sober train and ride right into the incredible, wonderful world of sobriety. Sobertown is a growing community of like-minded people in recovery, helping others start or maintain their sobriety. We refer to ourselves as sober warriors because the fight against addiction is a grisly battle that takes no prisoners. Real people die every day from complications and repercussions of long-term alcohol use. A tragic end that is 100% preventable through increased awareness and connection. And this morning we have with us Coach. He's with the Traditional Motorcycle Club. He has over nine years of sobriety, 15 years clean. Coach works as a recovery support specialist, peer supervisor, and transitional homeless program supervisor. Boom. That's really, really cool stuff there, Coach. Welcome. Right on, Drifter. Thanks for having me on, man. I'm really interested in your story. I really like that Sober Town has the Sober Souls coming on here. I, I think you guys are really cool. I think what you're doing with the communities are really, really cool. And you guys are badass. And you're just all into the um, the sobriety thing, man. That's really neat. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's that's what that's what I needed in my life was to, to find like-minded individuals that could give me an opportunity, man, really. That, that's all it was. Give me an opportunity to, to get out there and help as many people as I could, which I found wasn't working so well as an individual. So I needed to group up with some dudes and, uh, and, and that's how I found sober souls MC, man. I was, I was just a little short of, uh, three years sober when, uh, when I found those guys or they found me, I, I, you know, it was kind of, a. it's one of those things, you know, when, when the gods put signs in front of you, sometimes, sometimes you see them pretty clearly and, and you follow them. Sometimes you have to see them a couple times and, and then you end up following them. So that, that's what happened to me, man. It took a couple times, a couple of, uh, you know, seeing those guys rolling down the highway a couple of times going, hmm. you know, who, who are these guys? What are they about? And, uh, you know, that that's what planted the seeds for me in, in realizing that there were other, you know, like minded individuals out there that, that love riding motorcycles and, um, you know, and, and carrying the word, you know, the word of, of sobriety. Amen. Where do you want to start off with your whole story from the beginning or how do you want to roll with this? Um, yeah, man, I can, uh, I can drop in, you know, in the, in the fairly early, early ages and, uh, and kind of go from there. Go ahead, man. The floor is yours. Yeah, right on, right on. So, so I'm not one of these guys, you know, I've done a few speaker meetings, that sort of thing, but you know, I'm, I'm not one of these guys that has my story written down or, uh, or, you know, this, this kind of clean, cut sort of here's here's one hour of what i'm gonna have to say you know my story changes honestly every time i tell it you know because because as we're going through as we're going through our steps things like that you know we we drag up more stuff um you know i'm on like my fourth yeah fourth set of steps and and every time i do those those steps you know my story changes a little bit because something comes back up or, you know, you realize that, that you've been, you've been cleaning your side of the street and that adds to your story too, I believe. 
so for me, man, uh, you know, my, my story is not a whole lot different than a lot of people's, you know, I started at, at a fairly early age, 12 years old, it seems to be, um, you know, in, in a lot of the rooms and a lot of the stories I I've heard 12 seems to be kind of, uh, that age, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. So for me, uh, I, I was about 12 years old. It, it started pretty innocently. A, a friend of mine snagged some weed from her sister. And, uh, you know, we made a paper towel tube, aluminum foil sort of pipe to, to try it out with. Cause you know, we'd seen that going on before we sat out behind her house and kind of smoked a little bit and, you know, it, it was just innocent. You know, that innocent first time using marijuana, it didn't like skyrocket from there, but, uh, you know, that, that was my starting point, you know, by the time I was 14, 15 years old, you know, we're drinking Boone's farm and mad dog 2020 and Mickey's big mouths, you know, having fun on Friday nights with, with friends and stuff like that, you know, that turns into high school, which for me was, uh, it, it was, it was fun. Um, you know, I would get together with friends before like first period, we'd go smoke a joint, drink a little vodka or something, and then, you know, go to class. It kind of went from there, <laughs> let's say to, you know, skipping, skipping school, drinking gold slogger, you know, that kind of thing. Not, not a whole lot different. I don't think than than a lot of high school kids do. I grew up sort of in the country. High school was in a, a little bit uh, bigger town, 55, 60,000 people in that town at the time. So we had, we had places we could go, you know, we weren't living like inner city style, five minutes out of town, you're in the foothills. So, you know, we'd, we'd roll up to the mountains and do a bunch of, bunch of weekend drinking shit like that. So, you know, pretty, pretty innocent high school, you know, drinking parties after, after graduation, I went to Alaska for a little while to, to do some, uh, like kind of combination sport and commercial fishing with a friend of mine and, and his father, sort of a graduation present for us. Up there is when I got really in tune with uh, what drinking was all about. You know, we were we were on a dry island, so you couldn't get alcohol on the island that we were on. But we brought plenty with us. Uh, my buddy's dad was a pretty heavy drinker, so you know he wasn't going to be living on a dry island without plenty of booze. So you know, when when we made the trip up to Alaska, I think he brought like three cases of handles of Jim Beam with him. So, you know, that's, that's what we had to do, you know, after work and for fun on a dry island in Alaska was just, you know, hang out and drink whiskey. And, uh, you know, ultimately when the whiskey ran out, we came back to Colorado. I don't know if it was a purposeful timer that uh, we'd placed on ourselves or, or what, but that's kind of how it worked was, uh, you know, once, once the booze ran out, we just came back. I was 18 at the time, well, 17 at the time. When we came back, my buddy's sister was like, hey, while you guys were gone, um, you know, I found, found some really cool white powder stuff called cocaine that you guys ought to try. 
And I hadn't really gotten into heavy drugs or anything until that point. So, you know, I was like, hey, cocaine, cool, sounds fun. Let, let's give it a shot. So, you know, that's that's what I did. Got into the cocaine and then it wasn't too long till there was, hey, found this this cool new shit that's a little cheaper than cocaine and uh, keeps you going a little longer. So that's kind of when I found at, at that time it was like bathtub dope crank and, and got into that. So, you know, 17, 18 years old, getting into to doing dope. And that's when the running and gunning started. Probably not much unlike a lot of people. Hey, it's a lot cheaper for me to do this stuff if I'm selling it too. So, you know, kind of rolled into that, selling it and then kind of creating our own little uh, RICO organization, so to speak. You know, everybody everybody in our crew having nicknames and, uh, you know, just running around like dumbasses thinking we own the world selling pounds and bulletproof, a hundred percent bulletproof, man. You know, 18 at that time, you know, 18, 19 years old. Yeah. You, you can, you can kill me, man. So, you know, that, that's how that kind of spiraled from, you know, in sort of innocently using marijuana at 12, 13 years old to, you know, kind of sort of innocently using cocaine and crystal meth at 18, 19 years old, you know, and, and all the stuff that comes with that staying up for weeks on end, not eating, not treating yourself, you know, decently, you know, having running up on, you know, tons of finding out that you've got tons of enemies and nobody's your friend. You know, every, everybody wants something at that point, you know, the, the kind of general spirals that I think we as, as addicts see in our lives and the lives of other people and, and in their stories as they're coming up, you know, my spirals weren't terribly different than a lot of people's and until I learned how to make my own dope, <laughs> that, that's when things got a little different. Cause, cause you know, it's a higher caliber, a higher level. And, and when you're so prideful and, you know, really it's just, it's that pride and that ego kick in, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm making my own dope now. And that shit was good. And it was clean and, you know, good and clean as good and clean as, you know, dope can be. Becoming the mad scientist with the flask and the puffed out hair. I mean, that's just like the craziness that's- of it. That's it, man. And that's, that's what it turned into. And, uh, you know, fortunately for me, I managed to do all of that for shit years, man. Um, 11, 12 years without, you know, copping any major charges, you know, an occasional man, you know, honestly, I copped one charge for possession, I think in that whole time. And, and it was a small amount. So, you know, I had that going for me too, that, I, I managed to evade the radars of most of law enforcement. Legally, you weren't really paying a lot of consequences. Virtually and mentally, you were kind of, I'm sure, getting hammered. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was paying heavy consequences. You know, I, I was tearing my brain up, my mind. Um, I, I don't give a shit who you are. If, if you go, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, 15 days on literally little to no sleep while you're you know, pumping massive amounts of chemicals into your body, 
you know, that that's going to, it's going to lower your vibration. I mean, hugely lower your vibration. So, you know, spiritually and, and, you know, on that spiritual plane, I was nothing, you know, I, I was, I was bankrupt 100% spiritually, emotionally bankrupt. Um, I didn't give a shit about anybody or anything. I found it a lot easier to get clean than, than it was for me to get sober. And let, let me back up uh, just a little bit. So basically that cooking dope and, and doing the dope thing kind of turned into, I, I switched up to fentanyl, man. That, that was one of my drugs of choice for a while toward the end of my, my, my drug addiction. And, and I was, I was doing fentanyl, uh, transmucosal, um, suckers and, and those things come up to like 1800 milligrams. So I, I had a good connect with those, someone who, who had chronic pain and cancer. I, I could get them really cheap and sell them for a lot of money and, and do a lot myself. So, you know, that, that high of the speed and all of that, I found something else that worked for me too, in combination. And that, that was opiate. You know, I was, I never, never really did heroin and, and still, I can still claim that, you know, the one time I ever did heroin knowingly, um, I snorted it. I didn't smoke it. I didn't shoot it. I never used intravenously. So, you know, when, when I found the fentanyl, that was, that was a great turn on for me. Cause I, I had a almost unlimited supply of it. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I can tell everybody now I was getting it from my mother who was, uh, you know, like I say, chronic pain and her doctors were writing her scripts for like 90 of these things a month. And she'd only do like 30 of them. So that gave me 60. Right. So I'd sell 30 of them and, and do the other 30. Was that, um, was that during the time of like when they were passing out opioids like candy? Yeah, man, it definitely was. You know, I, and, and this was even kind of pre that, um, this was around, say, like, I'd say between 2001 and 2004, roughly. So that, that was definitely in the height of that opiate crisis and, and probably right at the beginning of it. And geez, yeah, it was, it was just, it was so easy for me to, to come by. So that, that's kind of when, uh, you know, ultimately I started figuring out that this just wasn't the life for me, man. At that, at, at the time, Oh four. So I have a son that was born in 2003 and, and it took me, you know, my clean date is in 2007. It took me three years after my son was born to figure out that, you know, that, that life wasn't working for me. So, you know, long, long story short, I found what I needed to find to get myself in a better place. You know, my son was going to end up never knowing me and only knowing foster parents or, you know, his adoptive parents or whoever that happened to be, but it wasn't going to be me. And, and it wasn't going to be his mother whom, whom at this point I affectionately refer to as his egg donor. So that, that was the springboard for me. And, you know, I know uh, you, you hear in the rooms all the time that, you know, you have to do this for yourself. If you're not doing it for yourself, if you're doing it for someone else, you know, that's usually when, when we fail, you know, our first two or three or five or eight times at trying to get sober because we're doing it for someone else. We're doing it for the courts or we're doing it, you know, to hold on to our marriage, things like that. And, and, you know, 
for me, man, that's what I needed. I needed to be doing it for someone else for a change. Cause everything I was doing for me was that was dope. You know, that's what I was doing for me. So there, there was no chance I was going to get clean for me. I need, I needed an excuse. You know what I mean? I, I really needed an excuse to get clean. And had you paid any legal consequences yet by this time? Um, you know, not, not much, man. Um, you know, a couple of, uh, you know, I got a deferred sentence for a possession and I, I picked up a DUI at one point there that, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, no, no, I, I hadn't, um, you know, I, I had a couple of, uh, probation terms that, you know, I had been unsuccessful at completing, but, uh, you know, this shit's so easy. It's so easy to get through that stuff. You know, I mean, how long can you really screw with someone over 12 months of probation, right? Finally, after two and a half years on a 12-month probation, you know, I made it through and they, they let me off. Mostly because I think they were sick of fucking with me. They were just like, <laughs> you know, enough with this guy. Right. Um, turn, turn him back out. Let him go. Let him go get really screwed so we can just put this dude in jail. So um, what's driving you to your sobriety, though, is your lifestyle and you, you, you see what it's doing and you have your son and you came to a crossroads. Yeah. Ultimately. And, and, you know, here's the deal, man, is I wasn't seeing what I was doing. I was only seeing what other people were doing. You know, I, I hadn't figured out what inward reflection meant. You know, I, I was so self-absorbed that, uh, you know, what, what I was doing was fine. Um, it was, it was me having to look at other people to see what they were doing. And, and by other people in this instance, you know, would be my son's, my son's mother. You know, I, I, I just had an epiphany one day after coming home from work and finding that she had, you know, taken some pretty high value items and, and turned them over for consignment or taking them to the pawn shop. She, she was just off a rocker, man, uh, which is, she, she was exactly where I was. I just couldn't see it in myself. I could only see outwardly. And, and so, you know, she was the reflection of me at that time. And I'd gotten to a point where it was, it was disgusting. It was just disgusting. I realized that, you know, that, that was an outward reflection of me. So, you know, I, I sat her down and I talked to her and I said, Hey, look, you know, things have to come to a head. We, we got to figure this shit out or, you know, our, our boy's not going to be our boy any longer. And she basically looked me dead in the eye and said, I'm not done. At which point I said, you know, I am. And, uh, you know, that, that was it. That was it for me. Um, that was September 11th, 2007, which was my last use. That was the last time I, I touched, um, any hard drugs, September 11th, 2007 from there, you know, it took me a few months to, uh, to get, you know, divorce papers and all that thing going. But, uh, you know, I made, I made a decision right then that that wasn't the life I was going to live and that, you know, my son wasn't going to uh, experience that side of life. I think um, it's really cool that you're bringing up where you were looking outwardly, not inwardly, because that's the first time I've really heard that, you know, where people are looking outside themselves and seeing all the destruction. I think that's pretty cool maybe that can motivate somebody else that's looking outward and they can't see themselves 
to maybe plug into that because that is them. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it brings us back to that, uh, you know, surround yourself with, with the people who you want to be or who you want to be like, right. I had that epiphany that, you know, I'm surrounded with people whom I don't want to be like, um, it, it it was cool and it was fun. And, you know, it, it, it had its moments, but you know, in the end, yeah, in the end, I, I had to look outwardly because I could not see, you know, my, my vision was, was definitely blinded. I, I had no idea what, what it meant to look inwardly, man. And so, yeah, that's how it worked for me. And, you know, I know what worked for me, you know, may work for other people or it may not, but, you know, I, I use that, uh, sort of analogy with, uh, with some of the homeless people with, with whom I work, you know, like, Hey man, you know, look around. Is, is this, is this you, you know, is this who you want to be? Um, as, as we're standing in, you know, in a campsite with 75 other tents around it or something. Right. And everybody's yelling and screaming and high and drunk. And, you know, they, you know, certain people can't tell their head from their ass, man. You know, I'm like, is this who you want to be? So I, I use that look outwardly quite, quite often when I'm working with other people, you know, who are you surrounding yourself with? Um, because that, that is the reflection of yourself and, you know, and that's ultimately, you know, what it took for me to look inward was was seeing that reflection of myself in other people i love that man that is just so cool that is so cool yeah so you know once once that came around um you know it didn't take long to to get the divorce and everything done and shit man then the night the night that we finalized our divorce my now ex-wife had both of the kids i've, I've got a another a stepson as well that that was her son and so she had both kids at the house with her that night. I, I got a call about 10 o'clock that night from her mother saying that uh, some things went down at the house. She wasn't going to tell me what went down, but, you know, some things went down at the house. Can you come over and grab Hunter? Um, you know, that that's my son with her. To which, I, you know, I was like, you know, I don't even I don't even give a shit what went on. Is my kid cool? My kid's cool. All right. I'm on my way. And, and it took a couple of days for anybody to actually come clean with me what had happened. And, uh, you know, ultimately she tried to commit suicide that night with, you know, both, both of our kids in the house. So that was, I thought ultimately the culmination of her spiral, but here that's me, you know, trying to work someone else's program for him. Right. Yeah. I was like, man, that's gotta be it. You know, she, she's gotta be on a different path now. And ultimately it wasn't man. So, you know, let's, let's just, uh, I'm not going to tell anybody her story. We're not here for that. But, uh, you know, I, I referred earlier to her as my son's egg donor. And that's because ultimately, uh, you know, she abandoned him. She bailed, took off. Uh, she took off to Wyoming for a little while, still doing drugs, that sort of thing. Came back to, uh, Longmont, Colorado, and uh, copped a couple of charges. Her parents bailed her out of jail and sent her to Hawaii um, because Hawaii wouldn't extradite for the, the charges that she had. That's where she sits to this day. And that was in 2012. So 10 years ago. And, and she's still in Hawaii. So, uh, you know, my son now is 18. You know, I, I managed to, you know, be a single dad. 
in congratulations. recovery. Congratulations. That's badass. Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate that. You know, and, and, and through all of this, man, I left out sort of the drinking because, you know, when I quit using, I, I went back to drinking. Yeah. Let's get to that. Um, yeah. So, uh, I went back to drinking after, after I stopped using and man, that lasted for, uh, let's see my, my sober date is one twenty four of 13. So, you know, I got clean in 07. It took me six years to, to go from getting clean to getting clean and sober. So, you know, through, through the course of that six years, man, shit got really bad and, and more toward the end. What, what actually brought me to that? And, you know, I'll leave out some details because, uh, you know, I'll, I'll save the details. <laughs> sure. But, uh, absolutely. Ultimately, man, uh, you know, I ended up in uh, 2012 getting pissed off at somebody, man, uh, you know, in a, in a drunken rage. And uh, I went and burned his fucking house down. <laughs> um, so, we'll, we'll, you know, like I say, we'll leave some of the, the anger and the rage and the things that brought me to that out of the story because that's not who I am anymore. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, so I, so I burned this dude's house down. It was a rental house of this. He wasn't living in it. Um, it was it was un, unoccupied at the time. But, uh, you know, I was getting my revenge. So, you know, that didn't go well. It, it really didn't go well. I, I found out pretty quickly that uh, fire marshals, fire investigators are pretty top notch. And. You know, long story short, I ended up in court. They had all the details, man. Almost like it, almost like they heard it from me, you know, and, and I'm sure that, uh, if, if I look back, you know, I, I guarantee some other people talked, but you know, they, they had all the details and, and they basically said, look, man, you're going to prison. And I was like, fuck, you know, my, at the time my kid was like eight years old and I'm like, you know, here I am again. Who's going to raise my kid? My kid's going to end up in foster care or, you know, with adoptive parents or whatever that case is. So, you know, I, I was at that almost that same turning point that I was at when I got clean. And it was, you know, I was looking at what is my son's life going to look like? Because I didn't give a fuck about me, man. I just, you know, I didn't give a fuck about me you know, through pre-sentence investigation and all of that shit, I managed to keep, you know, I managed not to drink through, through that whole like month of pre-trial investigation. And apparently in that, in that month of not drinking, you know, I got a little bit more clear headed and I was able to, uh, to convince the investigator that I wasn't a bad dude. So that investigator, you know, took that to the DA and, you know, the DA made a recommendation to the judge that, you know, time in DOC, he wasn't recommending time in DOC for me. Um, I was looking at eight years, eight years DOC, probably with wow, a three-year tail. That's huge. Yeah, that's huge. So, you know, ultimately the judge, you know, the judge through the pre pre-trial report and everything, uh, you know, and, and the judge spent some time with me in the courtroom, 10, 15 minutes, you know, just asking me some questions, things like that. And, uh, Ultimately, man, he, he made a decision that uh, four years of probation was going to be his recommendation for me. You know, I, I dodged a huge bullet there, man. You did. Um, well, that, that day when I went to court for, for my sentencing, I was fucked up, man. Um, you know, my attorney, when I walked in, was like, bro, you've been drinking, man. 
you you need to, you know, she basically told me just stand behind me. Um, yes, your honor. No, your honor. Or yes, your honor. Yes, your honor. Thank you, your honor. That's all you're going to say, you know? And so I made it through all that, got my sentence four years plus restitution, some other shit. So you went to court drunk. Oh yeah, man. Because, uh, check it out. I thought I was going to prison that day. So, you know, I tied one on, I tied one on really good. Yeah. I I made, I made some plans. I had someone, you know, that my mother was alive at the time still. And so, uh, you know, she was going to take care of my boy for me for a little while till we could, uh, you know, till I could get through, you know, to where I could actually call and start making plans. But I had no plans at that point. You know, I made no plans for my kid. My mom's going to handle him. Okay, cool. So, you know, after, after court, after the sentencing, my attorney took me to, uh, the sheriff's office in the courthouse and had me do a, do a breathalyzer. And, uh, that breathalyzer was a 0.043. 043. Uh, so, you know, and, and I'd quit drinking about eight hours before that. My last drink was right about midnight, um, that night before. So I was a, a 0.043. Man, that would have been about eleven hours after my last drink. Wow. So how you know how how I was even alive or able to stand up in court just I think maybe speaks to how much I was drinking that that was manageable for me. A point zero four three was manageable. You know, I could still function. I was somewhat functional at a point zero four three. That's insanity. That, it really is. That, yeah, it's insane, man. So, you know, that was my turning point, Drifter. That, that was my last drink, you know, that, that night, that last drink I took at midnight that night, that was my last drink. That was it um, right then. That, that was it, man. Wow. You know, I, I got home from court that day and I didn't drive myself. I had someone drive me just, you know, throw that little disclaimer out. <laughs> um, I, I DUI'd about 5,000 times or so in my life and only got caught a couple but that was not one of the times um, <laughs> I, I was smart enough to have somebody drive me. Ultimately I got home from court that day. You know, I got home from court that day. If you can believe that, that, that was not expected. You know, I, I kind of already lined up some people to come grab my stuff out of my apartment and shit, but I got home from court that day. That was a miracle in itself. And, you know, ultimately by, by the time I got home, I was, I was a little more sober. Still, definitely not legally sober. I would imagine for another day. But uh, you know, right when I got home, man, uh, I, I dropped to my knees. Um, I'm I'm not an overly religious guy. You know, my higher power is. Uh, you know, I believe in in gods, not God. You know, I I believe in in spirit and nature. You know, so I, I'm not not an overly religious person. But I dropped to my knees, man, and you know, I asked the gods for help. I, I just told him, I said, you know, I cannot do this on my own. Um, please help. That was it. That was, that was my one cry for help was, you know, a, a brief moment in my life where I actually dropped to my knees and, and asked for help. I didn't, I didn't ask for forgiveness. I didn't, you know, I just said, I, I cannot do this on my own. That's all I said. I don't, I didn't say, please help me or any shit like that. I just dropped to my knees and I said, I cannot do this on my own. So, you know, I, I had this part of my habit was, uh, you know, I kept a couple of bottles of vodka under, under my kitchen sink. And, uh, you know, after, after I dropped to my knees, man, you know, my day was done. 
that was it for me. I passed out, woke up the next morning, ready for work, man. You know, wake up, get up, go to work. That was my program. That's what I did. My routine was, you know, wake up, go grab a bottle of vodka from under the kitchen sink, you know, take a drink or two, go jump in the shower, brush my teeth, go to work. Man, that morning I woke up, I jumped in the shower, fucking went to work. It didn't occur to me until about uh, halfway through the day that I hadn't had a drink yet. Boom. I mean, it just didn't even occur to me. And that, that was my routine, man. Um, that was my daily routine. So when I got home that day, man, I went directly underneath that kitchen sink. I grabbed those bottles out and I poured them out. And I mean, uh, that, that is really significant. That, that just goes to show the change that you had the day before when you were broken. Man, I mean, you know, that, that made me a believer, you know. And again, it took me half the day half the work day to get through to realize that I hadn't done that. And, and that's when I was like, Holy shit. You know, I, I, I didn't, I didn't drink this morning. And, and I instantly, man, I was a believer. I haven't had any cravings really since to tell you the truth, you know, in nine years, man, you know, I've had a couple drunk dreams. There is a term called spontaneous sobriety. And I, I had it when I got off meth and, and I was, I stayed sober nine years through that and that's what sounds like it happened to you man boom you dropped on your knees said you couldn't do it on your own and you're gifted with spontaneous sobriety you know i i love that term man um i'm gonna use that because uh, that that's exactly what it was you know it and and i'd love to say i played some part in it but i didn't man the only part in it i played was you know it, step one and two, <laughs> you know, I mean, that that's ultimately what that was for me. That was my step one and two and, and one fell swoop of dropping to my knees. And then coming um, home that day and pouring the poison down the sink. Yeah. Yeah, man. Because, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, when I, when I had that epiphany halfway through the day, you know, that's when I made that decision was like, you know, I don't need that shit anymore. Yeah. So, so that's what I did. I poured that, I poured it down the sink and, uh, honestly, I haven't looked back since I, I look back. I mean, obviously, you know, we, we do not, uh, regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. So, you know, we, we, we definitely do need to be looking back and, uh, understanding the changes that we've made so that we can, can, that we can continue to, uh, you know, make those changes as we, as we, tread forward so <laughs> right <laughs> so yeah so that's you know that's ultimately you know that's that's my brief story of what brought me to sobriety you know from there i i'd love to say you know i springboarded my sobriety man but i white knuckled that shit for the first year you know i've been to a couple aa meetings previously usually drunk but, uh, you know, I, I didn't I didn't know what AA was necessarily. I didn't know what recovery looked like. Um, I just knew what sobriety was. And, and for me at the time, sobriety was just don't pick up, you know, don't don't use don't don't go to the liquor store. If I don't go to the liquor store, I can't get drunk. You know, if I don't go to the bar, I can't get drunk. And so, you know, that's how I spent my first full year was just white knuckling it. 
and, and not going to the liquor store and not going to the bar. Those aren't cravings. That's just changing your lifestyle when you're making that transition of changing your lifestyle, not to drink. Right. That that's exactly what it was, was, you know, it, it was, and it was hard fought. Um, you know, again, like I said, I didn't really have the cravings, but, uh, you know, at any point there, I could have without cravings, you know, it doesn't take cravings to go to the liquor store. It, it takes, you know, 20 some years of habit, um, can, can bring you right back there. Right. And in retrospect, you know, this one just occurred to me that, you know, when I, when I did drop to my knees that day, you know, I, I haven't, I haven't had to do that since, you know, I just, I just said, I can't do this alone. And I think that covered, you know, that whole gamut of the, of the things that I can't do alone and, and getting rid of those habits and things were things that I think were, you know, part of that prayer or, or part of that outreach. You know, I just wasn't specific. And I think that that lack of specificity is kind of what, what did it for me. Cause you know, that, that cry for help was, you know, an overall cry for help. Um, it wasn't a cry to just quit drinking for today. You know, it was, it was just a, a cry for, I can't do this alone. And, and ultimately, you know, we tell God our plans and, they, and he laughs at us. Right. For sure. That first year of sobriety, I pretty much did alone, man. Um, you know, I, I did it white knuckling. I didn't do it with a, with a network of individuals that had come before me that, you know, that, that knew what they were doing. You know, at the time I did, uh, I did work with a guy, he was, a he, he's an AA that was clean and sober. So, you know, he, he was able to kind of, I guess, temporarily sponsor me for lack of a better term. But, you know, he, he was also the guy that was like, you know, you're going to figure this out and, and sort of left me to figure it out. And, and, you know, ultimately I, I owe him my life. You know, we're still really good friends to this day, man. I just stopped working with him about a year and a half ago. So, you know, like I, I owe that dude my life because, uh, you know, he, he sat back on the fringes, but he, he was still an active spectator. You know what I mean? He, he wasn't like, hey, you're going to figure this out. Peace out. You know, I'm, I'm gone. He was like, you're going to figure this out. And, and was just there to, you know, give me words of encouragement occasionally, that sort of thing. But he, he never, you know, opened up a big book and worked steps with me actually until later on. He's, he's, he's my current sponsor now. So, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't have him sponsor me while I was working with them. So, uh, when I quit working with him, I reached out to him and asked him to sponsor me. So, you know, in, in that though, uh, it, it took me a while, man. It took me uh, two years or so ultimately to, to figure out what recovery was. You know, sobriety is one thing. You know, anybody can stay sober. You just don't drink, right? That's easy. For me now, you know, looking back in retrospect, that's easy. But are you going to work toward, you know, rebuilding your life? You know, building those bridges that you burn. Being a better person. Being a good person. Making, making those changes, right? That's where recovery comes in for me. You know, I, I know plenty of dudes that got 20, 22, 27, 28 years of sobriety, but they're still white knuckling it, man. You know, they're, they're not recovering. They, they still, you know, many of the mundane things in life still get to them. And it's, it's like, for me, 
I, I just had to learn, you know, mindfulness, learn to be here now that, that started to springboard my recovery, not, not, not being, uh, not being wrapped up in, you know, all of the things I need to do to stay sober, but getting wrapped up in all the things that I could be doing to start recovering. So, you know, so that's what I did. I started going to meetings, engaging with people in recovery, you know, really engaging, finding a, you know, finding a solid sponsor at the time who, who was able to work me through the, through the steps who didn't take, you know, didn't take any bullshit from me around that fourth step. You know, here I am two months into my fourth step, you know, Hey, Hey bro, like you're two months into your fourth step. Like we need to pick up the pace here, you know, cause, cause that's, that's where we lose most people. Right. Is that fourth step? You know, I, I could work with a guy, you know, they'll work with me every single day up to that fourth step. And then, you know, when it gets to that fourth step, you know, it, it takes two, three, four, you know, five, six, eight months. You know, I, I say, hey, work it diligently, man, for sure. You know, you, you always want to work a very thorough fourth step. Your first one, I think the more thorough, the better. But yeah, but that's where we lose people. And my sponsor wasn't going to lose me, man. You know, he, he stayed on me. He gave he gave me, you know, ultimately when we started hit two months, he gave me a timeline. You know, and, and he told me, hey, man, you know, like the first time I worked my 12 steps, I did that shit in one day. And I was like, you know, damn. All right. All right. I'm on this. So, you know, so I did my fourth step, got through my fifth, you know, did all that shit and uh, got to that 12 step where I got to start helping others, man. That's what springboarded my recovery. It, it wasn't that fourth or that fifth, you know, it's not that continued 10th. It's that 12 step. I live in that 12 step now. You know, it, it took me a couple of years to, to really pull my head out of my ass and decide that, you know, this is something I really wanted to do, you know, be active in recovery. After a couple of years, after, after those two years, after I worked a thorough, you know, 12 steps is when I decided that, uh, yeah, I needed to get more in tune with the sober souls. I needed to, to seek those dudes out and see what it takes to be, be part of something much bigger than myself. And so that, you know, so I did that and I found those guys and, uh, you know, ultimately I put in the work, man. And, uh, you know, I've, I've become, uh, I'm a national ambassador for the sober souls MC now, you know, in, in just over six years of, uh, blood, sweat and tears and hardcore recovery, man, you know, that's what springboarded my recovery was, you know, I did that. I got, I got my 12 steps done and I decided, you know, it was time for me to be able to, to, you know, share that message, you know, that 12th step. So you spent one year uh, getting sober and then two years recovery and then boom, you're jumping into hardcore recovery once you hit the, the sober souls. Yeah, man. Yeah. And, and it was definitely um, hardcore recovery, you know, and, and, you know, let's say hardcore accountability, let's put it that way. Cause you know, we, we have, we have members who, uh, you know, are 12 step guys. We got, you know, members that are celebrate recovery guys, you know, we're, we are not a 12 step base organization. You know, we're, we're recovering addicts and alcoholics. And everybody um, builds their own recovery system. That's it. That's it. You know, and um, you know, we, we always have to understand there are multiple pathways for and in recovery, 
you know, what, what brought me to recovery isn't going to be the same thing that, that brings somebody else to recovery. What works for me in my recovery isn't going to be the same thing that works for somebody else in theirs. So, so, you know, we're, we're open, but it's hardcore, you know, it's hardcore recovery. It's a Um, lifestyle. It, it truly is, you know, and, and I'm the dude that, you know, when, when I go to national meets and stuff like that, you know, I'm, I'm at the bar buying drinks for the other guys, you know, shit like that. Like that's where my recovery is at these days is I can walk up to the bar and I can order, you know, a couple double shots or something and I can carry them out to somebody, you know, and I, oh man, I'll, I'll take a sniff of it once in a while. Mm, whiskey smells good still. When you talk national meets, you're talking about when the clubs get together. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Things like that. Yeah. You know, so, so I'm that guy that, you know, if, 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 uh, if I feel like, you know, bellying up to the bar and, and getting someone a couple of drinks, I'll do it, man. But I'll also be there in the morning to hand them a couple of Excedrins too. All right. But you know, yeah, there's and, power and, and, in being able to go anywhere you want in your recovery. That you're you're not there's no inhibitions or anything. You're not held back by seeing rolls and rolls of bottles of booze. You can walk into the devil's playground and not participate. Man, and you know, and I do, and and I'll get to that here in just a minute with uh with what I do for work now. So coach, your club also does some other uh, things locally too, right? Yeah. You know, one of the things we do drifter is, uh, we put on, um, between our, our chapters on the front range and, uh, you know, around Denver, Colorado, um, we put on like five, um, we bill them as any fucking a meetings, um, every week. Any fucking a meetings, any fucking a man. Um, you know, cause, uh, you know, ultimately we, we understand that, you know, some AA meetings, they don't want to hear you talking about your drug addiction, you know, things like that. Right. So, um, our meetings are open, man. If you, if you're addicted, come to our meetings, right. You know, food addicts, you know, we, we have anywhere from, you know, food addiction to, you know, any, any drug you can lay out there, sex addiction. You know, if, if you're an addict, man, it's an any fucking name meeting. So yeah, we do five, five meetings a week in the Denver metro area around the Denver metro area. So addiction is addiction is addiction. It is hundred percent, man. Oh. Um, you know, it, and, and one feeds into the other feeds into the other feeds into the other. So it does. And at the end of all addictions, you're left with guilt, shame, and remorse. And that's exactly what you're left with. Yes. <laughs> Boom. You know, so, so I'll just wrap up with the sober souls, man. You know, I, I did that 12 step and you know, that was my springboard into recovery to, to find the sober souls, which, you know, was yet another springboard in my recovery. It, it put me with like-minded individuals who hold me accountable and who I hold accountable to, to do this thing to the best of our ability every fucking day, man. So, you know, just, just another shout out to the sober souls. They saved my life. And, and have given me an opportunity to hopefully, hopefully do the same for others that follow me. So, uh, man, about five years ago, I kind of out of nowhere, um, someone offered me as a sober soul, basically a scholarship to, uh, to do some peer recovery, um, coaching training because they thought it was something that I could use, you know, while I'm out riding you know, to, to help other bikers. 
I don't preach recovery, man. I wear it on my shoulder. Boom. You know, I wear it on my back, actually. Um, you, you do. Know, I, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. As do all of my brothers. So, you know, so I don't walk around and preach recovery. I'm, I'm not that guy. I, I wear the colors. I, I wear my recovery on my back, on my sleeve sometimes. And, and that, that is an inviting enough thing for people, you know, people who think they might need, you know, what we have to offer. We, we basically have a billboard that says, you know, Hey, I can help you, you know, I can help you recover. So, uh, you know, so someone, someone out there was thinking about me, man. And they're like, Hey, you know, I I'd like to help you out with, uh, you know, getting you a peer recovery coaching training, you know, maybe that can help other people that you're working with, uh, you know, just out and about, you know, and, and at the time I'm a, I'm a carpenter by trade, man. Um, master carpenter, master tile setter. So, uh, I did the recovery coaching and, you know, I kind of thought about, you know, wouldn't it be cool to get into doing that for a living? As Can you I'm, tell as us I'm what kinda, peer, peer recovery coaching is? Yeah. So, uh, honestly, I think, I think you could ask that question to any peer recovery coach and you'll get a different answer from every one of them, at least the ones that have been working in the field. So, you know, ultimately what, what peer recovery coaching is for me and, and I'll say what it is for me, you know, anybody can Google the definition, but, uh, for me, man, it's, it's an entirely different toolbox that, that I get to carry around with me that allows me to impart some of those tools on other people. It's a different set of wisdom that I didn't have previously that I didn't gain in the room. You know, there's, there's accountability, there's professionalism, there's ethical guidelines that we have to follow. But ultimately a peer recovery coach is not a sponsor. We're not a therapist. You know, we're not a counselor. We're not probation officers or, or, um, you know, we're not court liaisons generally. We're, we're just another tool in the toolbox to help hold people accountable and to help guide them through early sobriety. You know, I know a lot of people in early sobriety and, and I use sobriety, not recovery. Cause you know, to me that, that first little bit, especially coming out of treatment, you're, you're still, you're still hanging on to sobriety. You're starting to learn how to recover, but that's, that's where the peer recovery coach comes in or peer recovery support specialist is uh, in, in that early sobriety. When you're making that transition to recovery to help guide that. Cause when, when I first got sober, man, I had no idea what I was doing. You know, as, as you know, I didn't even hit a meeting for the first year, but, but as a peer recovery coach, you know, ultimately with one of the programs I work in, we scholarship people coming out of treatment into sober living. So what we do is like 10 days before they're coming out of treatment, we take their application, we go through it. If it's approved, we shoot it back to them. We get them assigned to a sober living, one of our sober li living partners. And then the peer recovery support specialist helps with that transition, you know, from treatment to sober living. And then in sober living, we're, we're helping with that transition as well, getting back into the workforce. Do, do you have a social security? Can you even get into the workforce currently, right? Do you have an ID? Do you have a social security card? Do you have a birth certificate? Basic services that, you know, a lot of us, 
give away or lose when, when we're in the end stages of our use. Right. So, so that's what we do as, as recovery coaches and peer recovery support specialists is we, we help get them in touch with basic needs services. You know, do you have insurance? Can we get you, you know, signed up for Medicaid or food stamps or just basic living shit that a lot of people don't have? Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. So, so then you're so working with guys coming out of, out of uh, off the streets and out of the prison and both. Um, yeah, ultimately, man, I, I personally don't work with guys coming out of like DOC. We, we have other partners and, and other organizations that we can refer to that are a better fit for that. So the majority of the people that, that we're working with or that I'm working with are coming out of treatment, specifically out of a 30-day treatment, or we're pulling them up off the street. I work in a, diff- a couple different programs, which, which you know I can tell you all about right now, man. So I work with the Hornbuckle Foundation. They're, they're based out of Littleton, Colorado. And what they do, they're, they're a nonprofit, 501c3 nonprofit that uh, scholarships people into sober living is one of the programs. They also offer uh, peer recovery coaching is another program. And there's also a transitional temporary shelter program, which actually I'm a supervisor for. We work with people that are coming directly out of treatment into sober living. We also work with people who are already in sober living or living on their own in, in our recovery coaching to, to give them, you know, to give them that service as well. But then the transitional housing, man, we, you know, that's a different deal. We, we have a few different referral partners being like pretrial services, the courts, probation officers, some parolees we take in. So, so those are referred through some of our referral partners, you know, which is like DOC parole. And then we've got private referral partners that run like day shelters, day programs, those type of things that, you know, they, they have somebody that they see that's in need that fits our, our target population because our target population was kind of decided an underserved population. We, we deal with co-occurring people with co-occurring disorders. So the people that we're bringing into that transitional shelter program are, uh, you know, they're generally justice involved. They have mental health and substance use disorder issues, you know, and, and they have nothing. I mean, they, they live on the streets, right? So many of them are not in recovery. Um, so we bring them into our program and, and we help them start to establish a foothold. We start to plant those recovery seeds. We offer uh, 13 different uh, like group meetings per week, pro-social events where, you know, we, we have a coach that'll, that'll take people out go-karting or, um, you know, doing cool, fun activities that you don't get to do when you're fighting for your life on the street, man. You know, show, showing people that you can have fun in sobriety, you can have fun in recovery, that, you know, it's not just sitting in rooms, you know, it, it's not doing 180 meetings in 90 days, you know, that that's great. You know, I, I, I love, I love the 90 and 90 and, and I really love the people who say, you know what, that's not enough for me. I'm going to do 180 and nine, you know, like once a week or so, you know, it's kind of cool to, you know, go out with a little group and, and go do a hike or, you know, go horseback riding or, you know, do something that, 
that you haven't gotten to do during the, you know, 15 years you've been fighting for your life on the street. So you got to show them a life, a new lifestyle, a recovery lifestyle. That's it, man. That's it. You know, all, all while they're basically living in a hotel, you know, that, that's how our, our transitional uh, temporary shelter program work. You know, we basically have like one whole floor of this hotel that we, we house our participants and we have an onsite therapist. She's an LAC LPC. So, so she knows, she knows about addiction. So she handles the addiction and mental health part of it. Man, you went from a carpenter, master carpenter, tile setter to really just diving into recovery. Yeah, yeah. And I left out how I got there, man. Yeah, uh, let's let's hear yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So I'll bounce back over to uh, I'll bounce back over to uh, to the program here in a minute. But uh, yeah, man. So, you know, I was in a motorcycle accident in October of 2020. And, and dude, I, I had a great job, man. You know, I was making 40, 42 bucks an hour or something like that as a carpenter, as a lead carpenter. Boom. I get in a motorcycle accident. I, I got hit by a 74 year old dude, left turn right in front of me. Didn't see me, you know, uh, you, you ride. So you understand how, how invisible we are on those left-hand turns, or just how invisible we are period on our motorcycles. So left turn in front of me, man, uh, I, I hit him. I got, I got video of it, but, uh, I'll share that with you after the, after the podcast, you know, I, I found myself ultimately, I, I was doing about 50 or so when I hit him, you know, I, I totaled my bike. I was riding a, a 20, uh, 15, uh, wide glide at the time, totaled out my bike. Uh, the only damage to me, man, I broke my foot, I broke my left foot. So, you know, I found myself laying on the couch for man a while <laughs> and after about a week and a half or so one of my brothers called me up sober souls brother called me up his name is michael hornbuckle so hornbuckle foundation if that rings a bell it did and it did. said <laughs> yeah said hey brother you know you're, you're just sitting around not doing shit and we could use another coach you want to come coach and, you know, here we are, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're like six, seven months into a pandemic at that point. You know, I'm like, well, I can't really go coach. Oh, it, it's cool, brother, man. Uh, you know, we're doing everything via Zoom right now. Fuck yeah. Right on. Let's do it. You know, I'd, I'd had my certification for like three years leading up to that. I'd been looking for a way to make that transition. You know, how do you transition from, you know, 40 plus dollars an hour to, uh, I mean, literally 15, right? If, if you, if you look for peer recovery support specialist jobs in the, you know, online classifieds, man, they're paying, you know, anywhere from like 15 to 18 bucks an hour. So, you know, our, our program's a little different. I, I get paid a little bit better than that, but uh, you know, that, that was my transition. I, I've been looking for a way to transition without, you know, without giving everything up, you know, because I'm, I'm a single dad, man. You know, I can't just say, you know, screw it. Today's the day that, you know, I cut my pay, you know, by two thirds and, and start doing this. You know, the, the accident was, uh, to me, man, looking back, um, being the spiritual sort of dude I am, you know, it, it, it was the gods ultimately intervening on my behalf to say, look, dude, 
you've, you've ridden out this carpenter train long enough. So, yeah. So that's how I made my transition. I gave you new tools, start using them. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, so I got jumped right in, man, you know, from there, it was only about a month or so before I got jumped into this, uh, this temporary shelter program that, that we've grown at that time. Basically all they did was voucher people into a motel, hope that they did all right. Basically just so that they're, you know, they'd voucher them so that their PO or pretrial officers or mental health caseworkers could get, you know, have, have a place to actually meet with them, you know, them being homeless population, justice involved homeless population. And we've grown that program, man. I got jumped into that. You know, I was a recovery coach for like a month, month and a half, man, actually working in the field. Um, you know, I've been a recovery coach for four years, almost five, I think now, but, uh, you know, actually in the field, basically we built that program from only strictly temporarily sheltering people in a motel to now we have a whole floor of that motel. We have a therapist on staff we have a peer case manager on staff. I'm on staff as a peer recovery support specialist, mostly in a supervisory role. We've got four other recovery support specialists on staff with us, as well as, you know, probably close to a dozen referral partners now. So, so these guys are getting know, a so, lot more help now from when you started a lot. I mean, tons. Yeah. Tons. Yeah. Tons. Tons and tons. Instead of, you know, just sitting in their hotel room getting fucked up every day because that's what they were allowed to do. You know, I'm sorry, man. You're you're in a hotel. It's it's off of a major highway. Like there's drugs there. There there just are. So that's what they were doing was just basically getting a free place to stay and doing with it whatever they wished. There were no rules other than hotel rules. There was no no guidance, no supervision, no anything. So it's like, here, get lost right back in your mess. Exactly. Exactly. So that's where we saw a need. So the Hornbuckle Foundation partnered with Safer Shelter Colorado. And we started building a program, like an actual program with a program director and therapists and supervisors and case managers. Now we have, you know, we have a 70 plus percent success rate. Um, wow, you know, that is huge, man. That is huge. Huge, huge, man. Huge. I mean, we're, we're looking at the general population where five to seven percent is probably to the success rate with a lot of places. And with, with the homeless, there's a lot of me- mental illness there. You guys are, that's amazing. Yeah, it, you know, it, it's insane, man. You know, we're, we're bringing people in that literally have nothing. They don't have an ID. You know, they might have a jail ID or something. They don't have a social security birth certificate. They don't have anything. A lot of the people coming to us do have Medicaid and food stamps. That's about it. And, you know, we're bringing them through this program. It's, it's initially 29 days. It can be extended another 29 days. And then we have a phase two, which is a, it, it's at a different motel down the way. That's a, it, it's a step up. Let's just put it that way. And, and that's where we put the people that have all those, all those services are handled and they're taken care of. And now they're working and they're working toward next step housing. So you guys then, went from one motel to two motels? Yeah. 
you know, we, we don't fill them up. Uh, we keep our caseload. We, we kind of cap around 25 people, you know, cause, cause it, it takes a, oh man, it takes a village. You know, it, it takes, it takes our entire team working with 25 people to, to keep them, you know, rotating through the program. So, so yeah, so we're not, you know, we're not filling up hotels. We're not working with three or four or 500 people at a time. But, you know, but ultimately each individual we're working with, we're, we're working with them individually. What's going to be best for them? Yeah. And that gives you that outstanding success rate because they're getting a lot of one-on-one then. They are, you know, they're, they're getting, like I say, up to 13 different groups and that includes, you know, mental health groups. And those groups are ran by four or five different uh, coaches as well. So it's a different group each time. You know, plus we have outside meetings, AA, NA, CMA, MA, CA, you know, any of the other A's. And these guys are you allowed know, to build their we, own we recovery just, system too. They are. And and it's highly encouraged because you know, if, if I if I try to tell you what your recovery is gonna look like, you're gonna bounce back and tell me, oh hell no, it's not. <laughs> right? Um, right. So, you know, so yeah, it's it's all client or participant guided to a point to a point you know obviously we have to we have to plant the seeds and we have to create some structure and give them guidance but ultimately you know they they do get to they get to write their own program man um they get to figure out what's going to work for them what isn't going to work for them you know that happens with exposure too because you you can't really develop anything if you're not exposed to it so with all these other systems that you got going gives them a lot of exposure it does. It does. And, and, you know, and ultimately once we get them, you know, in that next step housing, you know, they're moving into their own apartment, whatever the case is, or, or sober living, even, you know, we, we do definitely try to place people in sober living that, that are, you know, a fit for sober living. Cause that, that gives them yet another tool before they actually move into their own place. But then we do 90 days, you know, a minimum 90 days of around care with them once they are on their own living in their own place. So, you know, that, that's just another tool that we offer is that 90 days of wraparound care. And that's a minimum 90 days of wraparound care. You know, anybody can stick with us as long as they want, you know, from a, from a peer recovery coaching standpoint. Incredible. Stuff, man, that's, man. that's in a, that's in a nutshell, everything that's going on up here in, uh, you know, in Denver, Colorado, with uh, the Hornbuckle Foundation, safershelters.org, Safer Shelters Colorado, Mental Health Colorado, and the Sober Souls MC, man. Wow, that's just amazing that you guys have so much going on there, helping your community out. And could you imagine yourself where, I mean, you went from going in front of a judge drunk, right, to going home saying a prayer word that you can't do this by yourself, passing out, waking up, ended up pulling down the poison down the sink and look at you now, man, just that's the gifts of sobriety. I just, I think it's amazing. It, it is man. And, and, you know, you know, I, I stand up in ju- in front of judges, not drunk to advocate for, for clients now parole boards, shit like that. Right. Yeah, but, but yeah, you know, I've, I've gotten to a place where professionally now, you know, I, I, I do, I get to, I get to advocate for other people who were me or who are who I was, 
you know, and I didn't have those advocates, you know, nine and 15 years ago, this, this sort of a thing didn't exist, man. So I have a son. How was it with your relationship with your son being that you did most of this because you wanted to be a better father? How has that worked out for you? Man, you know what? Thanks for asking that question because, you know, ultimately my son and I have an amazing relationship. Man, I, I don't know how I did it, but somehow I managed to raise, you know, an actual like decent, upstanding, fine young man. Anytime he's reaching out to me, you know, I get text messages. He, he refers to me as father. Hello, father. Hello, son. Um, you know, <laughs> cool. that kind of thing. So, you know, he's, he's got like mad respect. He's super, he's super kind. I mean, the, the kid has a heart un, unmatchable for 18 year old kids these days, man. You know, they, they tend to get uh, wrapped up in, in themselves, but, uh, you know, he, he's, he's a giving, he's a giving individual. He's seen the amount, you know, he's, he's been around the sober souls for the last, uh, six and a half years of his life. So, you know, since he was roughly 11 or 12. So he's got, he's gotten to see what giving back really truly looks like, you know, when, when we're going to do feed the homeless events, things like that, you know, at 18 now he used to go to, you know, he used to go on every, every run, ride, event, everything with me. And now he kind of reserves himself for, uh, you know, he's like, pretty much is it a feed the homeless event he's in you know is it is it just us going to some other clubs clubhouse or something nah that's not really him but you know if he has an opportunity to give back he surely does our our relationship is amazing um he he still lives at home with me i i have no intentions on you know sending him anywhere he can stay with me as long as he needs man because you know at, at this point as an adult now you know it's one of the best roommate situations you could ask for <laughs> that's um, so awesome. yeah we're we're good he's he's awesome uh somehow i managed to raise a decent kid even though you know up until he was nine ten ten years old you know he got to see what his drunken dad was like i i think that's awesome i've got a i've got a lot of friends a lot of brothers who whom their their kids have never seen them drunk you know they've never seen that side of them and i'll tell you that you know my son is that one person that I've told my entire story to, you know, I, I've told parts of that story to, to previous sponsors, things like that. But, uh, you know, the big book says find that person, you know, that one person that, that you're going to tell your whole story to. And for me, that's my son, man. And so when you look back from going in front of that judge, which could have ended up eight years in the joint and then who knows where the direction your son would have taken. And you going home saying your, your short prayer. And then the next day pours, pouring the poison down the sink, recreating your life. You literally recreated your life. You know, what's cool coach. Anybody can do this. You just got to get driven. You just got to first get sober. And then once you get into recovery, doors start opening and it doesn't happen overnight. You spent a year getting sober. Then you spent a couple of years in recovery and then you spent more time until you broke your foot getting into what you're doing now. What an amazing story and journey too. And you're just, you're just beginning. I'm sure. Oh yeah, man. Oh yeah. I'm just getting started, man. Now, 
My club has given me the opportunity to do things more on a national level as an ambassador. So, you know, so now I get to carry our message across state lines and shit, you know, and, and, and doing things like this, man, you know, thank you for giving me the opportunity to uh, do Silvertown with you today, man. You know, it's things like this that, that help us spread that message. Right. And, and let the other, the, the, the other addicts and alcoholics out there um, know that there's hope, you know, we, we get to share our experience today um you know so that others you know hopefully may find a similar path and i think uh silvertown everything you guys are doing down there is you know just adding more tools to that toolbox man so i i greatly appreciate you drifter and everything you guys are doing at silvertown to to keep this message you know spreading well we're in the we're in the fight with you guys that's for sure and i you know i want to thank the silver souls too for and you guys coming on here to share with us addiction killed my brother. And I just want to see people, you know, live, stay alive. We're Saturday. They're burying a 20 year old son. One of my friend's sons that's 20, 20 years old from fentanyl. You're very blessed yourself to be alive with the way that you played with the fentanyl back in the days before it was even like, like it is now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that hits home with me too. Cause I just buried, uh, recently buried my 18 year old cousin from a fentanyl overdose, which, which was hard. It, that, that was one of the hardest ones. Cause I'm, I'm actually, I'm clergy as well. So, you know, so I, I did the service for that one and, uh, man, yeah. Just watching these kids just die is so heartbreaking, man. It's so heartbreaking that you know i i just i don't if if there's anything i can do to help the next 17 18 year old kid man i'm here and that's what that's what we're doing by bringing awareness and you know even on silvertown we say we're forming a village village of silver individuals from all walks of life that share a common goal to support others in recovery while also increasing the dialogue around the many positive aspects of sobriety versus the darkness of addiction because the addiction is a dark place to live. So, man, I just thank you. I thank the Sober Souls. I thank Scott for putting us in touch together. And I, I just want to keep doing more stuff with you guys, because I think you guys are badass with what you're doing. I, the Sober Living Homes, the homeless, I have a passion for the homeless, because I worked around them for like seven years. So I know what it's like to walk into the camps and talk and then know everybody around you and be able to talk to them. So amazing stuff, man. Do you want to say anything else before we close out? Um, you know, all I want to say is, uh, you know, you basically just did the purpose of Sobertown, man. And uh, it, it feels to me like we fulfilled that purpose for today. So, you know, again, thank you. Thank you for, uh, you know, putting this out there and, and, and giving other people, you know, yet another venue to, uh, to share this message and spread this message, man. You guys kick ass. Hey man, thanks. And you know, I always close and it just fits you so well. Remember pour the poison down the sink. All right, man. Thank you, coach. That's it. All right, drifter. Thank you.